This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation where we bring you role models, talk tactics and strategies, and examine key social issues to help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show about accelerating impact and developing talent with the amazing Deborah Quazzo. Deborah is, amongst other things, the managing partner of GSV Accelerate, a venture capital fund that invests in the $75 billion education and talent technology sector and the founder and senior advisor of GSV Advisors. Deborah's also the co-founder and managing partner of the extraordinary ASU plus GSV Summit, which is now in its 10th year. The summit celebrates innovations and innovators across the global pre-K to gray learning and talent landscape and attracts, as I learned last year, over 4,000 attendees. Um, In Deborah's spare time, she's a member of the boards of the Common Ground Foundation, Harvey Mudd College, Steppenwolf Theater Company, the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation, the Board of the Dean's Advisors at Harvard, the Khan Academy Thought Leadership Council, and the Board of Dean's Advisors Council at Princeton University. And that's not all of it. There's also Ascent Learning, Degreed, ETS, Lightyear, Remind, and Web.com. She is also the driving force behind the single best women's event I have ever attended. So with that, <laughs> let me say, Deborah, welcome Thank to Women you. at Work. Thank you. That's um Web.com got acquired last week, so you can take that one off. Okay, good. Well, I'll say congratulations. I think that's a sign of success. That's good. So, Deborah, with all the work that you do, um, I think it would be a gross oversimplification to say you're in finance. You seem to be doing something much bigger and more purposeful with the work that you do. You want to talk to me about what's driving you? Sure. I mean, I think the it was interesting. So I um, I'd been a long time investment banker. I had begun to work in education, human capital about 20 years ago with a partner of mine in Silicon Valley, um, who I've worked with for 21 years, and um, and began to focus on this emerging category of of um, technology, focused on accelerating learning outcomes, accelerating learning access, and and, and additional success on the human human capital side. And so what I was happily able to do was actually concentrate my focus, which began as investment banking, moved into angel investment, and then into a fund. And I, and I um, began to concentrate that around this, as you said in, in the introduction, pre-K to gray spectrum of learning and talent innovation. And on, the, on my philanthropic side of my life, I had begun to also work heavily in education with, you know, with KIPP, Kip school, HIP charter schools in Chicago and Teach for America and, and a whole host of other things. And, and I learned, I began to see this opportunity to, um, to kind of meld these two efforts on the, on the sort of civic and philanthropic side and the, um, and the commercial finance side. And it, and it occurred to me that innovation was as opposed to term, the term that's frequently used on the uh, particularly education side, reform, which is to me got all kinds of pejorative implications. Um, <laughs> certainly, reform does not make anyone feel feel good because it ins- you know, insinuates um, deep troubles, and, and you know perhaps sometimes that's appropriate. But but we began to see this opportunity to deliver innovation um, and in- innovative ideas as a um, as a positive catalysts on the philanthropic side of education and talent and that would actually mirror what we what we were doing the commercial side and and sure enough of course um, folks who are who are who have the hardest jobs in the world in our k-12 schools and our universities and etc um, are all you know are, are, are 
are turn is turned on by innovation and doing new things as 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 anybody. And so th- that's kind of how I've ended up in this place where um, I, one I'm very focused on this you know pre K to gray learning and talent arc. Um, our ultimate goal is that our our mission statement that hangs over us is that um, that we really want to see all people have equal access to the future. And we believe that to achieve that end, um, which is a big, big, certainly falls into the big, hairy, audacious goal category for Jim Collins. But to get there, um, we believe the wedge of learning innovation. I mean, education certainly is critical to get people there. And we we think innovations in learning and talent um, and, and particularly with our focus really on technology innovation, you know, has a real opportunity to try to ex- to accelerate opportunities and to accelerate the um, el- the elimination of gaps and, um, and, and and achievement and otherwise that we see actually wage gender etc you can get the, the gaps <laughs> there's a long list of gaps so we, but so we, we think there's a real opportunity in the and in what we do on the on the commercial side of the business to, to actually address many of these bigger issues um, the bigger issues of how we how all people have equal access to the future. So, Deborah, in what you just shared with us, there is so much that's important. I want to unpack it a little bit, um, both so that we can learn how to consider the interconnectedness of these ideas and also understand how you got here and learn from you and your own experience. Because you are at this intersection of innovation, venture capital, mm-hmm. Um, There's both your philanthropic goal here, which suggests this is a passion of yours, and understanding the complexity of the need. Yet we also know women in venture capital, there aren't many. (laughs) (laughs) Women in tech, there aren't many. Lots of barriers there. Not to mention the um, hurdle that educators have faced in figuring out how to embrace and incorporate digital technology at all levels of learning. So can you talk to me about how you started to wrap your head around and see the power and potential of tech as a form of innovation in education? Yeah, Um, for sure. And we were there really early. I mean, the original thesis, which was um, developed in the mid 1990s around. Well, let's just start on the investment thesis, which um, around education and human capital was that if you look, if you in the mid 1990s, you you had um, you could look at the education sector and say massive chunk of GDP, mm-hmm. highly fragmented, incredibly inefficient, <laughs> um, lacking really at that point any technology having touched it, and there was actually um, an, an analog made to the healthcare sector. Right, which had had at that point begun to see real progress um, through the delivery of effective technologies, and mm-hmm. that's obviously continued to accelerate there. And so we 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 made a um, we we created a thesis, which was that uh, education technology should should become a large emerging investment category. Um, we were early; it really didn't ha- it really didn't <laughs> develop fully for, you know, until the last five years. But um, but but. And, and the thesis, too, was the, the dysfunction of the category, the fragmentation, the poor results, et cetera, would attract great entrepreneurs and great innovators to want to rush in. Typically, when you see large categories with high dysfunction, um, in the United States at least, you see innovators rushing in to create solutions. Um, and I think that that in the 99-2000 period, the sort of first internet bubble, we, we did see a lot of activity. It was just the sector was not ready. So mm-hmm. whether it was um, whether it was classrooms not wired, I mean, there was, you know, no, there was no Wi-Fi, there was, I mean, there was just no basic wiring. There was, you know, t- um, 
learning leaders not being digitally savvy. You know, students themselves at that point, of course, there, there was not a, you know, not a savviness there either yet. Um, it, it, or, and people were not get, getting attracted to the sector at that point. And there all kinds of you know, um, procurement issues. And same thing for higher education, as you know, I think the Higher ed moved a little a little more quickly, but um, to to implement some technology, but not it wasn't radical at the time. I was working mm-hmm. to bring technology into an arts university, and just the concept alone was hard to sell because it was hard for people to conceive of. It wasn't real to them yet. It was it was, it was very so. Really, the only thing that got developed at that point was um, learning, you know, Blackboard, the learning management right. system sort of um, development, and, which which and, was important, but it, but it was but it was a different you know different beast. Than and a, some of the details that you mentioned in there about an infrastructure. Uh, both a conceptual and a physical readiness. Even do you have power plugs? Do you have projectors? Right. You know, all not, the, not to mention, the whole yeah, landscape Wi-Fi. needed to be reconceived of before the really innovative work that, could happen. That's right. So I think what you saw in 99, 2000, there was a rush of money into including some very big names like Kleiner Perkins and others to back sort of these new emerging digital technology solutions for education. And um, and and, if, and pretty much everything crashed and burned, right? And so um, I, I think having lick, you know, everybody went back licking their wounds and saying they would never Ever go back to the education education technology sector, <laughs> and um, in fact, people p- people stuck to that um, commitment uh, until about five years ago, when when things began to very dramatically change. Uh, you know, you obviously had the, just the very you know, core change of um, digital natives moving into the classroom. So the students were, so, you know, are now so savvy and and so much savvier than you know their their older adult <laughs> uh, parents and teachers and whatever else. So that that began to push it. We we have technologically savvy um, learning teachers, faculty, et cetera. Um, the wiring issue, thanks to a lot of work by a lot of individuals, the government, et cetera, uh, we no longer have uh, connectivity issues for the most part. There are probably there are still pockets, but for the most part, connectivity has been solved in the K-12 and has, has long been solved in higher education. Um, so all the dynamics changed. It get, became a lot less expensive to build an education um, platform. We've had, you know, we've had massive disruption of traditional publishing and you know, and I think for the higher ed side of things, I think the the um, the emergence of MOOCs um, in the 2011 time period, which is really when the three sort of biggest names um, popped out, real I think it did this really interesting thing. They were, they were wildly controversial, positive and negative on university campuses. Right. Everybody um, thought they were a Roman candle that they you know <laughs> popped out of the the woodwork and then they died. That's not which is not remotely true. They are all extremely healthy today and and doing uh, having modified. Their business, each having modified their businesses slightly, but um, I think the most important thing the MOOCs did, and, and I remember talking to a publishing executive, an executive at Pearson at the time, they said, you know, until the MOOCs came along, we, we had to, we would walk into a university to sell a Pearson, you know, digital learning product, and and it was a hard, you know, it was a, it, there was a lot of resistance and pushback, and I think what MOOCs did was really um, get everyone comfortable that this is where we are that digital learning is is an important thing and that we ha- that that it is not not something we can run from anymore so deborah as you're telling that story um and explaining how we watched education and technology come together because now it's right. inseparable in many ways um in there is the story of what happens when innovation comes along that we kind of can't conceive of it and wrap our heads around it and then there's some out in front who can and we have to get ready for it and then it becomes compelling and there's a race to catch up and figure out um who's going to be able to deliver it how are we going to accommodate it how are you looking for innovation now how do you bring that perspective to your work now as a funder? Yeah, 
Well, I think it's interesting because I think the, um, you know, one of the things about uh, online learning and digital learning, I think one of the things is, is, is you know, plays into the whole all people having equal access to the future and the future of work, et cetera. Um, what, what's, what's funny because is that one, you know, we, about a third of our country has degrees and about, you know, depending on whose study you look at, 60 to 80 percent of jobs in the future, to, and arguably today, um, require some form of degree. So we have this massive chasm of um, of folks who need some, you know, who cannot be accommodated by our traditional physical institutions. So we're, um, lots of innovation is happening around, you know, in non you know, the delivery mm -hmm. of non-traditional education um, and certification and skills and, um, and moving beyond the degree to get people job ready. Um, and, and job ready means a, is a complicated thing today because jobs are changing so rapidly um, due to obsolescence and and et cetera. And I mean, I'm, 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 if I see one more, I'm so tired of hearing about the robots eating our jobs. But but um, <laughs> I think that the the reality of the change that artificial intelligence and machine learning is bringing to so much of the world um, is, is very real and is going to require all kinds of different um, skill sets and learning and um, ability to parse you know, to, to parse very different things because because of the implementation of those um, technologies. So, so I think we're looking at we're looking at for companies that are um, that are you know, we're very focused on AI. We're seeing um, uh, we've seen uh, two fascinating companies in the K twelve market mm -hmm. um, that are that are creating both. We um, actually one of which is taking university you know, long a long studied university IP to deliver uh, reading learning. In, a, in an AI and machine learning facilitated uh, software, which is um, is is beautiful and, and compelling, and so we're we're very much there's a lot of fluff around AI clearly because you know because it's on every magazine cover, but we are very focused on it because we've we've actually had two companies, um, two two machine learning companies, one out of Berkeley and one out of Carnegie Mellon, um, are we're, we're in our portfolio and have actually already sold. So um, so we understand that it's a that it's a technology that's very transformative depending on where where it's, where it's applied. In both of those cases, it was actually automated grading. One was automated grading of essays and the other was automated grading of um, calc you know, computer science and, and math and you know, STEM subjects. This is fascinating yeah. and powerful in yeah. a dozen different ways. I want to take a half a step back, though, to yep. Coursera. Yeah. Because you were talking about, you know, Coursera had this powerful impact on helping others see the potential of this. But on its own, I think it deserves a little mention because, at least for me, it felt like this huge leap into delivering really high quality education yep. um, and making it truly accessible yep. globally yep. in ways that I don't think education's ever been scaled before. No, is that, that fair to say? Correct. And we, we, you know, our phrase for that is um, weapons of mass instruction. <laughs> um, and so we, we, you know, one of the things that happened in the last decade is that um, education technology has allowed, there was, there was never network effects in education. No such thing. Broadcast model, you were in a room, it was one to maybe 250 people. I mean, that right. was a network effect. Um, what, what companies like Coursera, um, edX, Udacity, others, um, uh, in, uh, you know, we, we're an investor in Coursera, <laughs> so we believe they are extraordinary. They're on a, they had a cover story on uh, Forbes this week, which is great. It, yeah, it, it is, it, it, 
is it was an extraordinary phenomenon. So today they're around, you know, north of 35 million learners. They still have 600,000 learners a month, new learners a month coming onto the platform, incredibly global, um, and still providing free access to an incredibly high quality university based learners. And it's and it's education in a range of disciplines, range of disciplines, and it's, but some of it's skill based and some of it is about big conceptual development That's so right. that you can now get a master's. Yep. From an Ivy League well, institution. Yes. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you the plug. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's it's very exciting. One of Coursera's businesses is the is the delivery of um, university degrees. And with the University of Pennsylvania, just in the last couple of weeks, was the first Ivy League institution. Bravo to Pennsylvania. <laughs> I would love to see my alma mater, fo- alma mater Princeton follow. Um, but I don't, I don't think we'll see that. But um, but it, but in a computer science master's degree from um, UPenn, which is huge yes. um, to have that. I mean, I, and I'm not sure it's even gotten a fair enough play what a big deal that is it's to a have huge, um, a, a, a university of that stature be willing to move online. Because um, it's a huge change in perspective um, for the university itself right. to trust that um, third party. Right. Yes. And also that delivering education in this form benefits society without weakening the institution itself. It's not a zero sum game. Correct. Both can happen in the same world. Right. But this expands the power of everyone to learn this, absolutely, acquire Bra- these skills. breaks down the admissions process, creates a whole different way of thinking about admissions versus um, it, it's a different. I mean, we want people who can complete. They will need people who are highly competent, highly mm-hmm. focused, highly dedicated to completing the degree because completion is important for for Coursera and for the university. But um, it it is it's a it's a very big deal um, that that we are going to um, that we are making this kind of thing, this kind of educational delivery um, accessible to all. And so it'll be really interesting to see what the what the compo- you know composition of the class looks like. You're also making it, and they've apparently had, as you might imagine, fantastic response to the announcement. Um, I think this, I think the, the, um, the class is supposed to be around 150, 180 students, something like that. Um, but it, it is, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a very big deal. And I think the, the other thing it does is allows people who are, it gives flexibility to folks who are mm-hmm. working, who can, who can create some, don't have to, sh- you know, obviously show up in a physical classroom anywhere and take a, a course from a world-class university. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's a, it's pretty interesting. University of Illinois was really the first to step out on the Coursera platform and with their IMBA. The other thing the IMBA and, and the Pennsylvania degree does is really creates pricing disintermediation. Um, University of Illinois' MBA pro, um, program is $10,000 a year. Um, that is about one-tenth of uh, oh, the higher name brand um, physical, you know, the whatever Harvard, Stanford, um, Penn, uh, <laughs> Warden degrees cost. It is a very high-quality degree with very high-quality, high levels of um, completion. Um, and, 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 and it, to me, opens up the market, expands the market um, for folks who can, one, be you know, do it more flexibly and, and do more affordably and, and, right. and pick are, up critical skills that are you know relevant to the mar- job marketplace. These are enormous barriers. One of the other things that I think is unbelievably potent in this is the idea, particularly this master's degree in computer science, um, when taken as a remote learner, what it does to the gender dynamic yeah. of the learner and what its promises for yeah. bringing women into the field at this level. Yeah, it's um, so one of the most discouraging things for people who care about gender parity, like I do and you do, um, is and the realization one that computer that that jo- computer science is a pretty critical um, 
future job. Uh, computer, computer science literacy and, um, and degrees are pretty critical to high-paying jobs in the future. Um, and actually, women women's participation, graduate rates for computer science have declined in the last, in, since 1990. I know, so it's it was, heartbreaking. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. It was 30% of CS grads uh, in 1990 were women. Uh, this year was 16%. Um, so I think some, some really interesting things happen online. Um, number one, and Coursera has seen this in their certificate programs that, that are, that are tech Technical orient, have technical orientations as well as their degree programs. And um, what you see is women, you know, one, are graduating at higher rates on Coursera um, than the national average. So, so somewhere in the 34 percentage participation, somewhere in the 34 percent range. Um, so you're just naturally getting more women who are comfort, comfortable to come take the courses. Mm-hmm. Um when they're online. Second, uh, what, what's really interesting is you, Coursera has also been able to study um, the programs and the populations of the programs. And what they did when they did that, because of the you know heavy data analytics being used um, at looking at the courses, what they when they did that, they realized that women were dropping out of tech of of you know STEM and computer science courses at higher rates than men were. And what they when they parsed the data, they figured out that women, if if a woman came on and took the initial quiz and did poorly, the the chances were that she was going to drop out drop the course. Um, when men took the first quiz and did poorly, they didn't drop out um, and they just kept going. <laughs> and the other thing that Coursera was able to see in the data was that women, the female students um, also are much more uh, rigorous about using um, using uh, material supplemental materials to get better. So um, so they figured out that they could come in and provide nudges to the female students to study this video or study this supplemental material or something like that going into a quiz that had their res- you know had them um, perform better on the quiz and therefore stay in the course. So they're so they're, they're driving up ret- retention using online using the online platform. Um, I think the other thing that's happened that's happening is great. You know the, the data shows that women are much more inclined to take a course online. I mean, take a course, period, if a, if a woman instructor is teaching. Now, one of the problems of so few CS graduates who are women is that there are few CS right, um, pipeline faculty. Um, so the, the beautiful thing about an online platform like Coursera is you can actually take female faculty and scale them um, by the nature of the platform. So you're going to have you're going to have natural attraction to more women students by being able to take those female faculty and scale them out. I think um, it, in that, and that's another really important piece. So I think we're just at the front end of seeing what digital learning and online learning can do to improve female participation, particularly in these critical um, STEM careers uh, in sci- and um, computer careers. But but and I and I, I think it's going to get more elegant and more um, and more impactful as they go along. But it's but it's neat to see what the early what the early data is showing that you can do to improve things. It also sounds like there are some some of what you've described. It's fascinating to hear as a package. Some of it's not that surprising right. that we know if we take, you know, that men are often willing to take a chance at doing right. something when they're only 60 percent ready and women want 100 percent right. readiness. Right. Um, right. You're seeing that reflected in this. Absolutely. But because these resources are currently available, whether it's that you're looking for it for yourself or you're an employer and you want to encourage the women on your team to continue to develop. Right. These are a potent resources, but the message 
that don't let that initial assessment exactly. dissuade you from the exactly. fact that you do belong in that program. Exactly. Because when we see women get over that hurdle, they're succeeding, correct? Oh, yes, absolutely. I, and it is simply, it's behavioral. So um, it really, I think the ability to go in and nudge and, and you know, explain to people success, you know, what the success rates have looked like and, and really get women focused on completion, uh, which is the important thing, I think it's just incredibly powerful. Do you um, think that these social psychological factors, not having role models, um, being intimidated at early performance, what we also know about in a real life classroom, the way that women's voices cannot be heard, are why we've had that decline since 1990? Yeah, I think it, it is. It's really, yeah, it's, it's um, absolutely. And it's interesting because I'm, uh, you mentioned that I'm on the board of Harvey Mudd, but um, and Harvey Mudd is run by an extraordinary woman, Maria Clave, um, who's been the president now for, for a bit and has, has, done remarkable things. Harvey Mudd is probably the hardest engineering school in the country in terms of just workload and, and incredible outcomes. Students students there uh, earn the highest starting salaries in the country. Um, but what Maria has done in coming in, one, she's created gender parity in terms of the popula- student population. Near, it's nearly 50-50. It was about 30% women when she started. She's also cha- she's also worked very hard to bring in female faculty um, and to you know, create role models and create a community that is supportive of women. So this year, um, the CS graduates were roughly 54% women um, and, and physics graduates somewhere in the same zip code. So over 50% of both physics and CS graduates at Harvey Mudd who are, who are typically going on to earn the highest salaries in the, in the computer sciences and the sciences period um, are women. And that, and that was, and that took very great intentionality. And so it, it shows you it can be done. And so that this sort of this fallback that we've had and the decline of graduates and can be reversed and, um, and needs to be reversed because we need, we need women writing algorithms very badly. <laughs> Most definitely. And that they can even exceed um, yeah. the, the demographics that exist in our well, society. Well, it's interesting. Once well, you know, those lessons are yeah, learned. Well, the crazy part is women are going to college. The college population is 60 percent women. The problem is that we're 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 doing that, but we're not going. We're still not getting into the highest paid majors. We're not. We're not taking the highest paid majors. We're not, and we're not populating, um, you know, groups, uh, you know, um, subject areas like computer sciences. So that that's the you know the frustrating part is that yeah, I think the fact that we're delivering over you know over the population percentage still under the university population percentage, but it is really impressive. You mentioned something that kind of goes without saying here on Women at Work, which is our commitment and concern for gender equity. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to dive into that a little bit and talk to me. You are um, an eloquent, vocal advocate, and you're also making change in real life. That's not just an idea that's driven by a lot of passion and I'm gathering some personal experience. Talk to me about how this coalesced for you as something that warranted the kind of attention you're giving to it. Yeah, I mean, I think it was just, it was natural. You know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm uh, on the um, 57 year old <laughs> working woman. Um, I have worked, uh, it never occurred, to, I mean, it never occurred to me not to be in, in the job, um, in, in working. And I, I enjoy it. I love it. I'm passionate about it. So that makes it, makes it easier to keep, keep going. So I think I'll, I think I'll, I can come back and do one when I'm 97. But, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, it certainly have it being that age, I came through a period in investment banking and I'm not sure it's gotten hugely better. Although I think many firms are working very hard at it, Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and others. Um, it was, a, it was a, uh, a very tough 
sector for for women. It was there were no role models. There were you know it was sort of like computer sciences is today I suppose. Um, there were no role models, no formal programs. I actually was just on a program this week in New York um, with large companies talking about employee resource resource groups, mm-hmm. ERGs. Yes. Which I um I, I, I had, dealing with startups, not having been at a big company really for over for you know. 20 years or so, or 15 years at least. I, I'm not, it was It was actually an alien you know, concept to me. Right, so because it was, at startups, there isn't the, there, there isn't the population to support that kind precisely. of subgroup um, precisely. activity. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So it was really interesting um, to hear what, Folks from Google and, and uh, you know Hewlett Packard and uh, Dell and others talked about the the importance that er, you know, place that ergs are, are are taking in the development mm-hmm. of, of women's um, women's groups and and career paths and supporting women to to you know accelerate in their careers. So, so that was really that was really fun to hear that that kind of thing is is developing in the in the larger sector of the. Um, of the employment base, we probably need to figure out how to deliver that down into the into the earlier stage sector of the employment base in the in the venture back community, um, because I think it's it's a little bit uh, you know lonelier down there. But yeah, so I, I got I really it became very it was a very natural passion for me. I always had it. I think that because um, uh, I always I had a had a, a great father who always told me I could do anything, um, and he was he was the he was the first feminist I ever met. I think, and. Um, and then I think what we had this aha moment as I began to work in the education technology space, and and, I, and and it's been helped more recently by the examples like we just went through with Coursera, which with what can happen when you can take traditional models of learning, at which perhaps have an inherent bias in them or right. have an inherent intimidation or have an inherent limitations or, for women in them. And it's not just women, it's women and minorities. Right. It's, as well. it's any underrepresented group and it's a culture that begets it. It's it's really interesting because you, you, it's fascinating when you can take that um, you could take move people out of traditional models of learning delivery and learning. You know, learning is just all about getting skills to work, to be good at work. And I mean, I actually did a, I had a great example for Harvard Business School. So I went to Harvard Business School and I um and I was I really was uncomfortable with uh, with the tiered seats and the hierarchy of the road. I found it I found it contrived and and I and, and I've gotten more and more involved with with HBS and, and they've they've got a platform called HBX, which takes which is a digital platform. But it's like the Hollywood Square. So you can see everybody, but it's flat. There's no hierarchy. There's nobody sitting in this row or that. And so and it was funny when I took it, I said, I loved it. I said, this is crazy. And the reason I loved it, it felt so much more authentic to me that you were, you know, that wasn't this control. It was more egalitarian. It was more egalitarian. And, and, it, and, it, and it just, a, it struck me as making me, at least, much more um, participative and comfortable in the process. So that's the kind of what was fun. What's been fun for me was taking a, natu- a natural passion. Uh, I did. I did get into college by writing an essay about getting women on the board of my high school. Um, <laughs> okay, so this started early. Yeah, it started very early. Um, and they, the first one they put on was my mom, which was fun. But um, the uh, the um, so I, I, it was a passion that I've always had and has grown has you know can, has lived with me to be able to suddenly see the area in which I'm vocationally passionate, i.e., I, education technology, begin to be able to deliver change um, for women and for minorities underserved groups broadly um, because of it, because of its ability to take the traditional model and and, and blow it up mm-hmm. um, and serve those individuals much more personally and much you know, with much more authenticity and with with the removal of bias to, to a degree is it has been a really great development for me that's that's only 
really probably accelerated in the last five years as these technologies have become real and as they've become um, scaled and as they've become, you're you're beginning to see these impacts like the Coursera example we walked through um, in, in the last segment. So this is clearly an area where you're not just passionate, but you're making a tremendous impact by helping these businesses develop and deliver these forms of ed tech. Yep. You also are making an impact in who the founders are of these companies. Talk to me about how, because I feel like you are building, if not at the center of a really extraordinary ecosystem. Um, well, thank you for that. The um, We, we love, it's been fun. I'm so, so you know, what you're, Laura, talking a little bit about associated with this Arizona State partnership we have on the ASU GSV Summit. We have, we have become a, began a number of years ago, um, a women's or group called, and we now call it POW, Power of Women in Education and Talent. Um, and we, we get the women, it's, it's a pretty fantastic event as you, for, for women and the elevation of women. It's for all senior women across across the learning and talent um, spectrum. And so and it, so that that started, that's an event and that's fun. And we're, we're, we're now working on making that less episodic and more of a, um, have a, a cadence and a drumbeat that allows women to get together, talk about serious things, see critical, you know, we had um, Gina Raimondo, the, the governor of um, Rhode Island was one of our speakers this year. Emily Chang was one of our speakers. Great opportunity to elevate women, have real real conversations around real issues. And we will continue to do that. I've also had the benefit of being able to invest in some really great women. Um, one of those companies is um, is a company called Fairy God Boss. It's actually the company that convened the the, um, the ERG um, summit yesterday, or yeah, yesterday actually in New York. Um, it, Fairy God Boss is founded by two extraordinary women. It's a, it's a um, workforce company that is um, two two amazing women came out of Dow Jones one of whom had had an experience of having been laid laid off in a big corporate downsizing um, at a time when she was pregnant but hadn't told anyone so her, so she 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 figured from that that there she found out through that through that experience personal experience that there was no place to go to find out what maternity paternity leave policies were um, without having to go ask someone publicly so they started fairy god boss um, Georgine Wang and <laughs> Romy Newman and um, and today uh, fairy god boss has a, over about 2.2 million and rapidly growing career women on the site. Um, the idea is to create transparency around both policies and practices like like maternity paternity leave, but also for, to allow women to go on anonymously and provide ratings and assessments of the environment for women in their corporations and in their you know, careers and whether they would recommend their company to other women. So that's another, I mean, that's another just a quick example. I have a number of other uh, female-led businesses. Um, Coursera was a female-founded business with Daphne Kohler. Um, that, you know, and that, that's just, and that's really fulfilling to be able to see women making a difference for women. One of the things about this that I find so fascinating, Deborah, is not just the businesses that are emerging because of these women founders, right. but that you're defying the odds that we hear about every day about women funders and women founders in Silicon Valley. Yep. So can you talk to me about how you're making a safe place for women founders, how you're finding them, supporting them, and addressing those barriers that we know are there? Yeah, I mean, I think that we're, our fund is, you know, we're not a women-focused fund, but we do, I think, probably have a, a, a disproportionate share relative to the single-digit averages <laughs> of female, of female-founded businesses and certainly female executives. Yeah, I think there are... Um, 
and and uh, there are some harrowing statistics around the venture community. I think the the recent the the um the gap table uh, report that that I sent to you that it was recently done by Carta and a and a female angels group, which showed that that women, if you look at all the the equity holding of venture back companies, that women hold about a third of the equity, but only hold about twenty percent of the economics, which is mm-hmm. much more substantial substantial than the eighty cents on the dollar wage gap that we that we all talk about and has never moved. And decades. But uh, anyway, so it, so it is a, a serious issue. Um, what we what we've done to to support women um, is is and we've used this um, this ASU GSV summit event, which um, as sort of the, the home base for it, which is where we we, we do tr- we we call out women, we bring them together, and, you know, in, in groups, we, we have conversations, we talk about key issues. Um, we, we love to elevate female founders. We constantly elevate, elevate female founders and leaders of all ilk. Um, it, it, it's an important practice. Interestingly, within education and human capital technology companies, what we found in polling, uh, we, we have about 400 companies that we invite every year, tech CEOs that we invite every year to present at the summit. And what we've consistently found we actually, and we, and and this is not contrived. It actually just happens. Is that um, uh, through excellence that about a third of the companies are led or founded by women, which is you know five times what the average is in, te- in tech sectors in Silicon Valley. And so we it, we're, we're fortunate in that I think for for whatever reason women are attracted to to lead and found co- you know businesses within the education and talent sectors at higher rates and they are um, than they are in other sectors. I also think we're fortunate in that there are a number of female leaders of funds um, and and female you know partners of funds in the sector. Um, that is certain that certainly outpaces what happens in in, uh, in other sectors. So I think that there is um, there is a real uh, important alignment. Um, people of of all kinds of people from Mitch and Frida, Frida Kapoor, who've been great champions of um, great champions of equity of all forms in the in the education and, and uh, workforce markets, uh, technology investing markets. Um, so we, we have we're, we're very blessed to have a lot of um, a lot of people who've really stuck their necks out about the importance of equity and um and of parody where you know and um so so and we've tried to really play off that creating you know organizing events around those um to, to play off those in, important communities i also want to take a moment because i don't think i ever got to thank you because mm-hmm. being there was its own treat mm-hmm. but part of what i saw that i think was so powerful is given how many communities are trying to create places for women to connect with each yep. other was that it felt very purposeful right. and dynamic yep. and that the discussions were about real issues that were challenging but presented intelligently and with depth. There was a kind of um, a way that there were founders and funders, teachers and learners, advocates and people who needed support in right. that room. Right. And so it was not, um, I don't want to let the gentleness of how you described it belie how purposeful it felt it, and how it, powerful yeah. it was as a result. Well, and what, what we try to do, what we like to do is we, um, this Plus event, there was great food. It was good. It was good, <laughs> good entertainment, good food. Um, what we what we like to do, we're proud of, is that the, the event is a, what we call a strange cocktail. So it is, it's K-12 educated leaders, school and district leaders, it's university leaders, it's corporate leaders, it's funding leaders. And it is, because inter- it, and, and it is purposeful. I think we're, we're, um, we're, we're, certainly it's one of the reasons I was attracted to be commercially involved in the sector 
is because of its purpose. Um, and it is it is fascinating when you think about it because, and I'm not going to have the exact statistic, but everybody talks about the problem. It's a pipeline problem. It's a pipeline problem. Well, look at just the the K-12 sector, right? Mm-hmm. There is no pipeline problem there because the because teachers are, you know, women are well over 50% of, of, of teachers in America. And yet if you then look at district and um and school leadership they are well under 50%. So yeah. it's it's pretty it's pretty interesting. So we do think we can bring purpose to the conversation in helping you know in in that's like in K-12 higher education and workforce um they're all they're 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 issue they're unique issues in each um and and I think that one's actually particularly intriguing because it because it doesn't get a lot of attention because I think sometimes mm-hmm. teachers are not treated as the professionals that they are. And um, and we're, we actually have a little a little work afoot um, in, in partnership with a woman named Hannah Scandera, who was the New Mexico superintendent of education uh, in the state um, around how, you know, how do we kind of go at the, how do we get more active on this topic of why are women not being pulled into leadership roles mm-hmm. in school and districts or all around our country at, you know, g- given that we clearly are there, there is clearly a talent pipeline sitting there. So, so what could we, so that's, that's, that's on my agenda. We haven't, we haven't, <laughs> we haven't rolled out the full activation yet, but we think that's a very important um, topic, for example. Having spent my career in higher ed, I've described it as a gender layer cake. Mm-hmm. And that there's, it's as if there's ghettos within the institution and particularly in K through 12, of women in the classroom, particularly in K through eight, and then you see men teaching in the higher grades and then leadership roles. And part of what was so powerful about this community of women is you saw innovation leaders, you saw superintendents, you saw people, um, public servants, you saw people at every level of the ecosystem who could start to facilitate change and become aware of each other. That's exactly right. And um, also in that magic way of maximizing impact, then all of those relationships spark other relationships. Right. I had dozens of phone calls when I came back <laughs> okay. afterwards, Good. and I hope some Good. of them were useful Good. to those on the other side. I want to talk about mentoring now, yep. because in a way you've created an ecosystem so we could find each other. Yep. Um, who are you mentoring now? How do you approach that? And who mentors you? Um, I don't know who mentors me. Um, I'm too old for that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I missed that boat. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, one of the reasons I've been a pretty active mentor is um, is that I missed that boat. I just, I you know, I didn't, I was... It, my career at Merrill, I was at Merrill Lynch for 13 years. There was really, there was certainly no structured mentoring. There, were, there, was, there was little... Um, uh, there, there were few women um, to do it. it. It was just not. It was just not the kind of place where the mentoring relationships were established. And so, and, yeah. and also, I've heard from other guests who are part of the mm-hmm. same generation we're from that it wasn't on our radar like it is now. Yeah, it, wa- it wasn't. It, and and I think and, and and frankly, then it just happened in, in kind of an old boys network, and mm-hmm. so men did mentor men. And I think we're uncomfortable mentoring. You know it neither here nor there. But I think that in hindsight, realizing, so I then left and started my own company with a, you know, with, with, with a partner and, um, we started an investment bank and then you, then you, you can't be mentored because you're, you know, whatever you're, you started, the, you started the business. But I, so is, is my own observation of how much better it might've been if I had, you know, if there'd been somebody fantastic mm-hmm. in that 13 year period where I was really my most important developmental years. So I have been, um, I, 
I love mentoring um, company founders, CEOs, um, women and men. Um, so I spend a lot of time doing that. I have been very blessed to um, meet a couple of young women. Um, I have a we have a, a, a who I who've become very much part of my life. There's a young a young woman, Andrea Mondragon, who is a senior now at, at Denison, and um, whom I met in a elevator when I was on the Chicago Public School Board, and. Um, we just fell to talking, and it, t- it turns out um, that she is a DACA student and um, and uh, um, needed some mentoring and to, to get to college and get to the right place, and she got to the right place. Denison has been spectacular, um, incredible, incredibly supportive of everything that Andrea has done, um, including having her meet you know, many members of the board, which has been really interesting and terrific. And so she's a senior now, very proud of what she's been able to accomplish. And she's actually hoping to go into teaching, which is is pretty cool. So in the version of in the movie about your life, that moment where you meet her feels important. Mm -hmm. How did you discover each other? It was funny. I um, and I'm not I'm an introvert, so I don't normally talk to people I don't know. Um, (laughs) So um, I, you know, I think I just said hello. We were she was on a student council, a sort of an uber student council in the district. And I was going to the meeting, you know, as as a board member, just to um, wave the flag. And um, so we started we we, I just asked her what her aspirations were. And she told me about, you know, she wanted to go to college and um, and that she had hopes to, um, you know, do different things college related. And so so we, we began, I sort of began to unpeel the onion um, in terms of what uh, challenges she was facing as a um, as a you know wonderful young woman, and um, and and we began to help her around uh, you know test prep around the the ACT and and um, helping her um, access some of the some of the folks that my my own kids had 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 worked with, um, and, uh, and she just she just the most warm grateful never you know for, I mean. If it, Standing in the shoes of a of a of a young person who's coming up through the um, the DACA the the the, un, uh, the undocumented system here in in um, in America is uh, is a very sobering experience um, and I, I I can I will never complain about anything again and 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 she's never never down always up gives everything her all she's done and has done a spectacular job so she sounds as remarkable as you are <laughs> Deborah one of the things that I love about this story aside from that there's this extraordinary woman out there who's really beating the odds and that you're helping her do it is that it's an example for us of what happens I think in a very personal way yeah. when two things come together um, a young person's courage to share and say hello and talk and your curiosity that even in your moment of introversion you listened and that she couldn't have found a better person to listen at that moment and that you found so part of it is message to everyone out there right ask the talk questions to everybody bring in the your elevator. curiosity yes talk to people <laughs> but the other part of it is about recognizing that there will be now fortunately mentorship programs yep Sometimes we confuse the word mentorship with coach and where people can guide you and that's valuable. But there's also a unique power and I think depth of reward that comes from the relationships that we organically build. You didn't go hunting. No. For this. No. 
I think that's right. I think I think organic relationship, and then we're also busy, and you know, I mean, I think finding time for organic relationships is really important. Um, I've also, um, another, and it's actually I've been able to connect the networks, which is great. I've also the direct, the executive director of KIPP in Chicago, a wonderful, extraordinary human named April Goble, um, has also been a, a pretty a terrific mentee of mine, and has become you know a, also a member of my family, and and is actually, and then I was able to connect April with Andrea, and so April has been a huge coach for Andrea around the whole looking uh, prospectively for teaching opportunities and what the best application is. So it also becomes really fun when the nodes, the nodes in your network actually have complementarity and you can, you can, you I can was just thinking, them, I would love is, to see your network map and, well, it the, and it's ripple effect. It was good. I know. And actually the common person between me and April was, uh, is a woman, Mahalia Hines, who is uh, a school, a longtime Chicago school board member, rock star principal, and, and actually Common's mother. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, Anne Hines. Which explains something Anne about Common. Uh, exactly. exactly. <laughs> It, it certainly it explains a lot about comedy. Anne Hines is extraordinary. So she's also been in this network um, helping around mentoring both, you know, April and others. So, okay, so it's well, fun to have, have notes. So while there's no humor without truth, and you were joking before about, you know, you're too old to be mentored, you still clearly learn all the time. You are in command of swaths of knowledge that are complex and interrelated in fields that are changing right. all the time. Right. How do you stay current and how do you learn? Yeah, um, I work it like crazy. So, for example, um, I mean, I read I read constantly, but but. I said artificial intelligence, and I'm certainly I certainly do not have a machine learning AI degree. <laughs> so um, for us to, to step into investments where you're where it's not your core academic discipline is is a scary thing. So um, we, we're fortunate that we have many people in our network, wonderful partners and friends and in, um, in the network who are who are deeply steeped and deeply academically uh, oriented. But um, around AI, for example, um, we read like crazy. But I'm, for example, flying to China, Beijing um, on the 29th, 28th for like a, for effectively a day trip um, because uh, because we have we have great partners in in the China market. Um, China is eclipsing the United States in education innovation at, at such a it's a, at, the, at a pace that is inconceivable, um, because the from a top down and a bottom up perspective, the government, parents, students um, believe in the importance of of the of the economic advantage of being smarter than you know having a population that is more well versed and skilled and smarter. So they are applying emerging technologies. Um, you know, at a clip that is absolutely head spinning. They also have the core issue that it's it, it would not be feasible for them to to manufacture a teacher or faculty uh, population to serve their they their population. They absolutely it's have so to enormous. scale delivery of education, and there's no way to do that physically. So, um, so, so I'm flying to Beijing to be part of an opening of uh, an AI lab in um, in Beijing that founded by New Oriental, which is the second largest education company in the world, and um, and we're we're partnering with them on that. So. You know, I'm a I I I can't get enough information. I I'm a junkie in that regard. You know, every time um, I talk to you, it's like, did you read this? Did you I, see I, this? Yeah. I, it, so it's it's um it it is it is um I, I just it, it it's just the, the I it I'm curious about everything, so I just keep pushing myself to to read and meet people. It's really I mean, there's a wonderful I may have described this to you, but a, a company just went public. A Chinese company just went public, founded by a wonderful Princeton PhD out of their AI machine learning practice. But it's called um, LAIX Lex, and Li Liushu is the uh, Chinese name, and it's a it's a purely robotic language learning platform um, that is all AI. And um, you know, deep academic team. Uh, I also have an advisor in the neuroscience 
sciences at Yale and um, what, you know, what the parts that are being put together around brain research and artificial intelligence that will allow a more rapid delivery of high levels of learning to people um, is just fascinating. Uh, and so, you know, so we do everything we can um, to, to be there in the middle of it, to partner with people, to learn from people um, and to, to absorb as much as, as we can to stay on top of it. Deborah, it's so exciting to me to hear about everything you're doing. I'm so grateful to know that you're out there doing all of this um, and to somehow, you know, be connected with it where I am. Um, if people want to learn more yep. about how to get involved with the summit, yep. how to they're developing ed tech solutions and right. want to find you, where should they go? Um, I am very good on email. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm often um, accused of being the fastest email responder in the history of uh, whatever. And, and I perhaps, I'll testify perhaps, to that. perhaps I should stop that. Actually, it's probably something not that I don't want to be famous for. Um, I'd love you know, be delighted to have anyone contact me as it related to an ed tech um, uh, ed tech or, or human capital talent tech workforce technology um, development. We the, the ASU GSV Summit is is open to everyone. It's um uh, you know it's www.asugsvsummit.com. It is our tenth anniversary. We're about to start rolling out the announcements of who some of the big time speakers are going to be. Um, and I hate to do this because we're really going to run out of time. Deborah, thank you so much. <laughs> Go online to gsvaccelerate.com. Check out Deborah Quazo. Thank you. This thank is Women you. at Work. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.